Good morning. If you are headed down to Children's Church, you can dismiss out the back uh, with Miss Melody. If you're staying with us, there's activities on that back table that you can grab uh, and that you can use throughout the sermon. Uh, so today we are continuing in our series on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, if you haven't been with us recently, you have uh, you picked a good week to join us or quite a week to join us. But I trust that God has you for here for a reason. So the Sermon on the Mount is probably Jesus' most famous teaching in the Gospels. Uh, we began uh, the first two weeks by looking at the Beatitudes or the blessings. And in the Beatitudes, Jesus told us who was blessed. And he used some surprising characteristics to call blessed. For example, Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are those who mourn. Poor in mourning are not blessed characteristics in our culture. But we saw that what Jesus is saying is blessed are those who recognize their sin and grieve over their sin because it reveals their need for a savior. We must recognize our sin, our need, in order to experience God's grace and forgiveness. He went on in the Beatitudes to describe the characteristics of how a Christian should live. And from there, Jesus talked about how we as Christians are called to live as salt and light. Meaning that if we live out the Beatitudes, we will shine his light, his hope, wherever we go in life. And this gives every element of our life purpose. Last week, we saw how Jesus reveals and how he fulfilled all of the Old Testament, including the law and the prophets. And how because of that, he can offer forgiveness of sins and salvation to all that follow after him. We also saw how the Old Testament is still important today and how we are to interpret and understand it. From there, he launched into this teaching that we are continuing in today. And in this teaching, Jesus is revealing that God cares about our hearts and our attitudes, not just our external actions. The Pharisees or the teachers of the Jewish faith had been teaching that it was only their actions that mattered. We looked at murder last week, and the Pharisees taught that as long as you didn't physically kill another person, then you could essentially do whatever you want. You could hate them in your heart, you could sabotage their family, you could gossip about them, you could abuse them, you could bully them. As long as you didn't kill them, then they said you were okay. But Jesus here is saying the obvious. The law is more than just your actions. Your heart and your attitude matter too. And in this section, he's giving us six illustrations from the Old Testament. And these are six examples. They aren't complete, but they are samples that establish a precedent of how we are to understand the law and to live as Christians. God doesn't care about the pseudo-righteousness of the external, but he cares about our heart. And he, is care he desires that we have pure hearts that love people as he loves them, that have integrity, that value others above themselves, that desire his ways over our own. God cares about our hearts and our attitudes, not just our actions. And so today we come to the next two examples in those six examples. And today, Jesus is going to kind of get up in our personal business. He is going to talk about adultery, and he's going to talk about divorce. And as we begin, I want to open much like we will close, and that is this. I don't know your story. I don't know your whole story. But I know for many that today's message will hit in some areas that are personal and painful. And so my reminder for you as we begin and as we conclude is this. And that is that God's grace, his love, and his forgiveness are bigger than anything in your past. And they are bigger than anything you are walking through today. The gospel tells us that God loves you and he is bigger than your past. He is bigger than your sin. He is bigger than whatever's happened. And he can redeem it for his glory if you will allow him to. Jesus loves you. Right? The whole gospel is that he loves you so much he gave his life for you so that all of your sin can be forgiven and redeemed. So with that said, we are in Matthew uh, chapter 5, starting in verse 27. So this is carrying on uh, right after he began this section of the law and then talked about murder. 
Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I just uh, pray that you would uh, be with us today, Lord, and that you would open our hearts and our minds to what it is you are trying to teach us today. God, I pray that you would uh, help me to speak clearly and to share your words, Lord, and anything I say that is not of you, Lord, that you would uh, just help us to forgive, to, to not hear. But God, I just pray that you would speak to us, Lord, and that we would be reminded of your grace and your mercy which abounds, that we would be reminded that you have a future and that you love each of us. God, we love you, and we praise you. It's your name we pray. Amen. So I said it in the introduction, and I will say it again. These two examples are two of six examples that set a pattern for us to follow. And that pattern is that God is calling us to greater righteousness. He is calling us to heart change and not the pseudo-righteousness of the Pharisees. So Jesus begins with, you have heard it said. And here he is addressing the teaching of the day regarding the seventh commandment. The Pharisees had been teaching that adultery was any sexual activity outside of the confines of marriage. They, like with murder, had taught it was only the action that mattered. Meaning you could get as close to whatever the line was as you thought it was as long as you didn't cross the line. You could commit the act in your heart and in your head as long as you don't commit the action. But it gets worse than that. The common teaching of their day by the Jewish faith was that you could only commit adultery against the husband. So if a woman cheated on her husband, she committed adultery against him. But if a man cheated on his wife with another man's wife, he was committing adultery. He was not committing adultery against his wife, but against the other woman's husband. And they taught that if you cheated, if a man cheated on his wife with an unmarried woman, that he wasn't committing adultery at all because there was no other married man involved. Now, of course, that is a horrible, horrible double standard. It twisted the original meaning of the command to give the husband a loophole so he could be unfaithful to his wife and still say he had not committed adultery. Right? That is evil and false. And so Jesus here, he is speaking against this norm, this accepted teaching, and he is saying, of course, both a man and a woman can commit adultery. And he says, not only that, God cares about our thoughts and our hearts, not just our actions. So adultery is not just an act, but it is the lust of our heart. And so that's our first point, and it's kind of the overarching point of all six of these examples. And that is that our hearts and our attitudes matter, not just our actions. In verse 28, Jesus expands our definition here. He says, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And we see two things here. First, the obvious, a man can commit adultery. So he addresses this terrible interpretation of the law that was floating around. You know, a lot of people believe or, or say that the Bible is oppressive and anti-woman. But when you study the Bible in the context of its culture and the teaching at that time, you quickly realize it was radical in its protection, care, and love for women. Can you imagine living in a culture where even the religious leaders were teaching that a man couldn't commit adultery and it was always the woman's fault? Right? Jesus steps in here and he says, you are so missing the point. 
Not only should you not cheat with another woman, but you shouldn't even look lustfully at another woman. Women were not created for your objectification. Jesus stood up for women and valued women more than any other in the Jewish or Roman culture. And then he tells us that not only can a man commit adultery, but adultery happens in the heart and mind long before the physical act. And lust occurs when you go from recognizing the beauty of someone to the objectification of them for your benefit. Again, we're going to try to keep it PG-ish so we won't go a whole lot farther than that in the definition. But in our culture, this is a temptation and this is a problem like never before in the history of humanity. There is a temptation still today towards lust with a person walking down the street at your work, in your class, at the gym, and so on. But there is also the temptation on all of our screens that is prevalent, accessible, and deemed by our society to be harmless. But it is destroying lives. No matter how harmless something may be deemed by society or yourself, the Bible tells us adultery and lust will always lead to destruction. If you want research and data on this and the destruction and the culture shift on this, uh, from a Christian viewpoint, I'd encourage you to, ins- uh, to encourage you to visit Barna's research on the subject. It is insightful and it is devastating. But 2 Peter 2.40 gives the following description of the wicked. Peter writes, with eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. Lust is wrong because you are no longer loving the other person, but you are using them for your gain. Lust seeks to master and conquer while love seeks to serve. One more thing before we move on and and kind of address this a little more. Don't ever use a verse like this to uh, justify or excuse further sin. Right? Somebody might reason, well, I've already committed adultery in my heart anyway, so I might as well go ahead and commit adultery in the flesh. That's stupid. All right? That logic is flawed in so many ways. You don't want to compound one sin with another. And then although adultery in the heart and the flesh are both equally sin, adultery in the flesh has consequences that are far-reaching in your life and the lives of others. So Jesus says adultery doesn't just happen in the act, but it happens in our hearts and minds as well. Okay, verse 29, we get this kind of strange discourse from him. He says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. Just clarify, Jesus here is not advocating self-mutilation, but instead he is using figurative language to make a very strong and very clear point that drastic measures to remove sin are worth it to save our hearts and to save our future. Jesus says sin is disastrous and you must use extreme measures and get rid of anything that causes you to sin. This goes for lust, this goes for adultery, and it goes for any other sin you may be struggling with in your life. So our next point is this. Jesus says drastic measures are necessary to remove temptation and sin. Let me begin with an example from outside of the scope of this. Uh, The other day I was listening to uh, The Ramsey Show. It's a show uh, Dave Ramsey gives financial advice from a Christian perspective. Uh, And on that day they had a guy call in who had an online sports gambling problem. And this young man had gambled away all of his family's money and he was in oppressive debt. But before tackling the debt, Dave Ramsey sought to talk with him about the heart of the issue, which was his gambling problem. And his suggestion was, you need to stop hanging out with your friends at the sports bar. You need to get the computer out of your house, and you need to get an old school flip phone that doesn't allow you to gamble on it. And when he said this to the man, the young man just laughed at him. Dave was giving this advice, but the man wasn't willing to make the sacrifice to remove the temptation from his life. He wanted a solution to his problem without any sacrifice. 
And it's that same advice that Jesus gives to us. He doesn't want us to gouge out our eyes and cut off our hands. But he does advise us to remove the stumbling blocks from our lives. Jesus says your heart, your soul, your future is worth the sacrifice. Your sin is and will destroy your life and your future. It is worth any sacrifice to get rid of it. If you remember a few years ago, there was that hiker that got his arm trapped under the rock out in the desert. And in the story, or in the, it's a real story, I mean, the man cut off his arm with a pocket knife in order to escape and save his life. And we hear that story and we say, that is incredible, but of course he did that. That makes total sense. It is better to lose your arm and save your life than to keep your arm and die in the desert. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying to us from a spiritual sense. It is better to cut off the source of sin and save our souls, our hearts, our futures from destruction than to keep those things and suffer the consequences of our sin. Uh, Dietrich, theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, No sacrifice is too great if it enables us to conquer a lust which cuts us off from Jesus. And so if this is you today and you are struggling in this area, then Jesus would tell you to, to seek help, to seek counseling, to take drastic steps to remove the temptation from your life. If it's a person that is causing you to stumble, that is causing you to sin in this area, then he would say, cut them off. If it's a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a coworker that is leading you to sin, Jesus says it is better to break it off than to continue living in sin. And I know that feels like, it feels like life isn't possible without that person, but Jesus says, I am enough. It is better to lose that person than to lose your integrity, to lose your future, because it will lead to disaster. For you, maybe there's a location that is causing you to lust. And you need to cut it off and change your patterns. If it's your TV, your computer, your smartphone, then you need to take drastic measures to remove the temptation. You may need to get rid of the TV or certain channels. You may need to leave your computer at work. You may need to switch to a dumb flip phone in order to remove the temptation from your life. Whatever the sacrifice, Jesus says, it is worth it to save your soul, to protect your heart, and to save your future from disaster. And there is hope even in the midst of what may seem or may have become an addiction. He says, seek help, seek counseling, seek accountability, seek the Bible, take whatever step necessary to follow Jesus in that area of your life. And know that despite the guilt and shame you might be feeling, that there is love, there is grace, there is forgiveness in Jesus that awaits you. And there is power in his name. That's the first section. All right, let's jump to verse 31 and try to understand what Jesus is teaching about the subject of divorce. He says, it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, Jesus says here, it has been said. And so he's addressing two things. He's addressing Deuteronomy 24.1, which is kind of the, the chief uh, verse on divorce in the Old Testament. But he is also addressing the teaching of the Pharisees at this time. So we have to get some background understanding as we approach Jesus' words. So first, Deuteronomy 24.1. Jesus' teaching, uh, Anders writes in his commentary, Jesus' teaching on divorce is drawn from Deuteronomy 24.1. The Old Testament teaching of divorce was not a commanding of divorce. Rather, it provided protection to the woman when a divorce was chosen. It was actually Moses' effort to curtail the rampant practice of easy divorce amongst God's people. The legal certificate kept the husband from treating his wife capriciously, threatening her with abandonment, and then one day, and then taking her back the next. It protected her from abuse. So prior to Deuteronomy 24-1, there was no protection for woman. a woman. You could divorce your wife, and then three days later say, you have to come back with me. She was not freed from that marriage. Uh, so prior to Deuteronomy 24, divorce was casual and commonplace, 
and it was used as a manipulative tool by a husband to get his wife to do anything he wanted her to do. And then he could divorce her, as I said, and take her back the next day. This certificate provided protection for the woman and also took time and forced couples to pause beyond the emotions and consider whether this is something they wanted to do. The heart of Moses' law was to protect women, and it was to keep marriages together. So that's kind of the biblical background of Deuteronomy 24. But by the time Jesus lived, this teaching had gotten even more messed up, just like adultery. Commentator F.F. F. Bruce writes, Yet in Jesus' day, this permission of Deuteronomy 24 had become an instrument of cruelty against wives. The scribes busied themselves solely about getting the bill of separation into due legal form. They did nothing to restrain the unjust actions of husbands. They rather opened a wider door to license. So if you go back and read Deuteronomy 24, it gives permission for a husband to divorce his wife for some indecency. And a schism had developed over these words, some indecency. And there were two schools of thought. There was the school of Shammai, the Rami Shammai, and it interpreted some indecency to only refer to a sexual misdemeanor, which was authenticated by a witness. So the school of Shammai permitted divorce only for adultery. But there was another teaching from the school of Hillel that interpreted some form of indecency to mean any sort of complaint that a husband might have against a wife. There's document of this that had gotten so broad as to include a burnt meal. So the school of Hillel taught that if a man had a wife that upset him in any way, or if he found a woman that he felt like might be a better wife, then he had permission to divorce her under the law. Well, as you can imagine, one of these two teachings was more popular amongst the men and leaders. But, you, can, you, but can you also imagine being a wife in that environment? There was no security in the relationship. You existed just to please and not upset your husband. And so Jesus here is addressing this belief, this controversy, this false teaching that had developed. And so when he says in verse 32, but I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, he is specifically addressing this controversy. He's saying, I am with the camp of Shammai, not the camp of Hillel. God doesn't desire divorce, but instead he desires marriages to last. He desires to be a relationship of self-sacrifice and love. Now, Jesus here, he talks about sexual immorality as a reason for divorce, but note here he says it's a reason and it's not commanded. At times, reconciliation is possible even in that instant if there is repentance and forgiveness present. It can be a beautiful picture of the grace that God has shown us. I don't want to spend forever on the details because I don't think that's the heart of this passage. But divorce is talked about in other places in the New Testament as well by Paul and Jesus because it was a pressing issue of that day. But the reasons for divorce is expanded in 1 Corinthians Son to include abandonment by a spouse, which most agree also includes instances of abuse. So if a spouse leaves, if a spouse commits sexual immorality, if a spouse is abusing the other spouse, then it is biblically accepted to divorce them and then one day remarry. And God puts these measures in place to protect a spouse from a spouse that is living in unrepentant sin that is hurting, hurting and threatening them. But both Jesus and Paul here are telling us that divorce is not a casual thing like it had become in their culture. And it has at times become in our culture. It is always hard. It's always going to have consequences. It's not the ideal. It's not what God created you for and desires for your life and mine. But we live in a sinful and broken world and God has put that protection in place for us. As we have said, with all of these six examples, Jesus here is not trying to address every situation possible, but instead he's trying to get us back to the heart of the law, back to the desire of God, and back to the, our hearts and our motivation. 
In the heart of God, revolving marriage is that it is a lifetime commitment between one man and one woman. And so that's our next point. God desires marriage to be for a lifetime. Jesus in Matthew 9 talked about this subject again. He reiterated this point. He said, what God has joined together, let not, let not man separate. And I think most of us can get on board with this. Right? Nobody enters a marriage with the attitude of, man, I hope I can get five good years out of this thing. Right? That's not how we enter marriage. No, we enter marriage hoping it lasts for a lifetime. But then sin and life happens. So what do we, what do, we do with this? Let's try and draw some principles out for different phases of life we might be in. First, maybe you're here today and you are single. Right? We live in a culture that tells us that marriage is like a Disney princess movie. Right? And that it is your spouse that is going to complete you. I want to speak over you, first of all, there isn't a person on this planet that is capable nor was created to complete me. That is trying to fill a God-sized hole, a God-sized problem with a fallible person. That will always end in disappointment. Secondly, in Jesus in Matthew 19 and Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 is going to tell us that it is possible to be complete and happy and satisfied in singleness. And that for some, God calls them to singleness for the benefit of the kingdom. So please know if, if you are here and, and that is you, you are not in any way less than if you are single right now. Then lastly, I would encourage you to live with integrity, to invest in your relationship with God. Uh, if, if this is the case, to pray to God about your desire for marriage and then look for someone who's pursuing God more than anything else. It is very possible God will bring someone along, but make sure your heart is ready for that relationship and you are pursuing him for your completeness more than some other person. On the other hand, maybe you're here today and you are married. What is God calling you to do? I think God, more than anything, God is calling you to honor and invest in your marriage. In Ephesians 5, Paul talks extensively about marriage, and he describes the marriage relationship as a picture of God's self-sacrificing love for us. Marriage is hard. It requires work and sacrifice. It requires you to give up your preferences, your desires for the love of another person, but God says it is worth it. Marriage is a constant reminder of God's love for you in the world. One pastor I read this week wrote, Your marriage isn't designed to fulfill you, but to be a reminder of the ultimate fulfillment you have in God. It is a picture of God's love for you and for mankind. It is to be a picture of God's commitment and covenant to you and to mankind. When you love your spouse in a sacrificial way, it is a picture of God's love for them, for your family, for you, and for the world. When you stay committed to your spouse, even in those difficult times, when it seems much easier to jump uh, and stop trying, then it is a testimony of God's covenant and his faithfulness for you. So if you're here today and you are married, commit to love, support, serve, and take joy in your spouse. For better or worse, through sickness and health, till death do you part, just as you said on your wedding day. And maybe you're here and your marriage is struggling and it's hard. Don't, don't suffer. Don't, don't just suffer. Don't give up. Talk to a counselor. Work through the challenges. Commit to marriage counseling. Commit to getting rid of the thing that is causing strife. Commit to serve and love your spouse even if they don't return that love. Commit to love your spouse unconditionally as Jesus loves you. So if you are here and you are married, then invest and honor your marriage. Of course, that is all said under the caveat that your home is safe, that you are not being abused, that your children are not being abused, that your spouse is in a serial adulterer or living in habitual sin. I mean, if that's the case, get help and get somewhere safe immediately. Do not stay in a marriage where someone is harming you or your children. And then lastly, what do you do if you're here today and divorce is a part of your story? Verse 32 ends with this kind of a weird statement. 
He says, but I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. Anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Is Jesus here saying you aren't permitted to remarry? Is he saying that you've already remarried, that you need to divorce your new spouse and go back to your old spouse? I mean, you talk about a messy and complicated situation. But no, I don't believe that's what God is calling you to do. And I didn't read anyone that advocated, advocated for that. But I think Jesus, again, is drawing us back to the heart of the issue and the reality that God desires for marriage to be for a lifetime. And that divorce is serious and it is hard. He's addressing the casual nature of divorce in their culture and he's calling us to more. And if you are here today and you are remarried, then God is calling you to a God-honoring lifetime commitment in the marriage you are in. Love your spouse, serve your spouse, sacrifice for your spouse, care for your spouse as God loves and cares for you. But still, what do you do if this is part of your story? How is Jesus calling you to wrestle and deal with this part of your history? I know if that's you, this probably has not been a fun sermon, and I'm sure it's hit a wound or, and brought us some difficult emotions, but what do we do with this? First of all, if you are here today and you were wronged, you were sinned against in your divorce, Maybe you had a spouse that was unfaithful. Maybe you had a spouse that abandoned you. You had a spouse that divorced you for no biblical reason or no reason at all. What do you do with that kind of hurt that has altered and changed your life? Well, my hope and my prayer for you is that you would find your hope and your identity in Jesus. If that is you, you have a sympathetic friend in Jesus. He knows what it is to be rejected without reason, to be abandoned without reason, and he is sympathetic towards you, and he cares and loves you. So my hope and my prayer for you is that, that you would turn to him for comfort, for peace, and for hope. He loves you. He values you. He cares for you, and you are his. Turn to him. Turn to him for healing. Turn to him as you seek to forgive and move forward. If needed, seek some wise biblical help and counseling that will point you to him. If you would like help processing that hurt, let us know, and we will connect you with an awesome Christian counselor and even help with that cost if we can or if it's needed. Jesus loves you. He cares for you. He created you. He has a future for you. Secondly, you may be here and you may be on the other side of this. You hear Jesus teaching on divorce and you recognize that you are the one that sinned against your former spouse. What do you do with that? How do you move forward in that? Well, that's you. Let me remind you that you have a great Savior in Jesus. And there is no past, there is no sin so grievous that he cannot forgive and redeem it. His grace is greater. He is greater. His love and forgiveness is greater than your past. So that's you. Don't justify your past. Don't excuse your past. But confess your sin and receive his forgiveness and walk forward in his grace. As we begin to wrap up, I'm going to leave the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to jump us over to John chapter 4. In John chapter 4, I want to share this story with you from Jesus' life. In John chapter 4, Jesus is traveling. He is thirsty, and he stops at a well in Galilee. He stops to get a drink, and while he is at the well, a woman shows up, and she joins him. And this woman is alone. She is getting her water at noon in the middle of the day because she has been ostracized by her own community for her sin. We quickly learn this woman has been married and divorced five times in her life, and she is now living with a man that was not her husband. This woman has been divorced, and she is quite publicly guilty of adultery. And we know that Jesus knows about her past because he's the one that tells her about her story. And knowing all of this, you might expect that Jesus to get up and walk away from the sinful woman. 
You might expect him to condemn her for her sin. You might expect him to ignore her or tell her to figure out her life before she dares come and talk to him. But Jesus doesn't do any of those things, does he? Instead, Jesus looks her in the eye with compassion and value, and he talks to this woman. He takes time for her. He loves her. He offers her forgiveness and eternal life. He reveals to her that he is the promised Messiah that can give life and give forgiveness. In fact, it seems to be this is the first person outside the disciples that he reveals his identity to. And then he sends this woman who was ostracized by her community, that was told by her community that she was not enough, that was told by her community that she didn't have a future. He sends this woman out to share this hope and good news with everyone she meets. Friends, every one of us are guilty of sin and in need of a Savior. Every one of us has a past and things in that past that we are not proud of. But Jesus promises us an eternal future if we are his. Like with this woman at the well, Jesus offers us forgiveness. He offers us grace and he offers a future which he will redeem and he will use us moving forward. Jesus tells us he is not done with us. He is not done with you. No matter what your past or present looks like, he loves you and he is not done with you. He offers you forgiveness and a future that is better than whatever you are walking through or have walked through. That's why Jesus said just a few verses ago, blessed are those who recognize their sin and blessed are those who mourn over their sin because they will inherit the kingdom of God. You are not alone in your sin and your past hurt. And your sin and your past hurt is not too great for Jesus. Like with the woman at the well, he knows your story. He knows your past. He knows your current struggles. And as hard as it is to believe when I look at my life, he knows it all, and yet he loves me still the same. He gave his life for you. He gave his life for your sin. He gave his life for my sin. And his grace and his forgiveness is sufficient and greater than my sin. And that's our final point. God's grace is greater than my sin, and it is greater than my past, and it is greater than my hurt. God's grace is greater than my sin and it is greater than your sin if you have trusted him with your life. When we talk about sins like adultery and we talk about heartbreak like divorce, it's sometimes hard not just intellectually to accept Jesus' forgiveness, but it's hard to feel it and believe it in our souls. It's hard to believe that there could possibly be a future for me. Sometimes we know that we are forgiven in our heads, but we hold on to the guilt and the shame of our past. Paul writes this beautiful verse in Romans 8.1. We, we visited it in youth group this week. He writes, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Paul says, if you have trusted Jesus with your life, then he has not only taken and forgiven your sin, but he has and he desires to take the guilt and shame that come along with it. In Jesus, there is no condemnation. And so it is my prayer for you and my prayer for myself that we would know and believe that truth as we walk out of this building today. So as we transition to respond, Melinda, she's going to come and play. As she plays, we're just going to take a few moments to reflect and to pray and just to talk with God. And so as we respond, I pray first and foremost that you would know and experience the love and forgiveness of Jesus. Maybe you're here and you need to experience that for the first time. Or maybe you're here and you are living in sin. You need to turn that over to Jesus today and repent and experience his forgiveness anew. 
If you've never trusted Jesus with your life, the Bible says if you will admit your sin and your need for a Savior, if you will believe that Jesus is God's Son and He died for your sin, if you will confess your need through prayer and follow after Him, you will be forgiven. You will inherit eternal life. Paul in Romans 10, 9 says, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. So if you're here and you've never trusted Jesus with your life and it, your life and experience his forgiveness and his promise of heaven, you can do that right now in your seat. If you have questions, you can come and see me after service. It would be my joy to talk with you. So first of all, if you don't know him as your Savior, would you experience his grace and forgiveness today? On the other hand, maybe you're here today and there is sin in your life and God has quite clearly spoke about that sin and he has called you to take some drastic steps to remove it from your life. First, would you experience his grace and turn that over to him through prayer? And then would you have the courage this week to take whatever step he is calling you to take? Maybe you're here and you're married and you need to commit to honor your marriage today. To invest and take whatever step is needed to invest in your marriage. Maybe you're here today and your life is full of hurt. Your life is full of betrayal and sadness today. My prayer for you is that you would experience Jesus' comfort, grace, and forgiveness. So as Melinda plays, maybe you just need to experience that and turn that over to him in prayer. And ask him, Jesus, would you come and comfort me? Would you show me your grace? Would you show me that you're sympathetic with me? And would you comfort me? The Bible says that Jesus is the great comforter. And he desires to give you a hope and a future. Would you turn it over to him today? Would you turn it over to him in prayer and, and then seek help as appropriate as you seek to process that? So wherever you are, would you just pray today as Melinda plays? And I trust that Jesus will speak to you, that he will comfort you, that he will assure you of your forgiveness and your grace. That he will take away the guilt and shame. And God, I pray that wherever we are, that we would turn it over to you. Let me pray for us. Dear Lord, we thank you that you are the great Savior. God, we thank you that no matter what our life looks like, no matter what our past looks like, no matter what our present looks like, no matter what we're walking through or have walked through, that there is grace and there is forgiveness available to us. And God, we thank you that there is grace and forgiveness. It doesn't stop there, but it is grace and forgiveness that takes away all of the guilt and all of the shame of our lives. If we haven't trusted you with life, would we trust you today? But if we have, would you help us to not just know that we are forgiven, but to feel it as we walk out of this building? To know without a shadow of a doubt that we are forgiven and to feel that our guilt and our shame has been taken away. God, we pray that you would give us that in these next few moments as we pray and talk to you. God, we also thank you that you are the great comforter, that you are the great healer. And that no matter what our past looks like, you desire to come alongside us and comfort us and heal us. That no matter what our past looks like, you love us and you care for us. That no matter what our past looks like or our present looks like, you have a future for us. An eternal future and glory in heaven one day and a present future and a future now on this earth. That you desire to use us and grow us to be more like you. Again, Lord, would you help us not to just know that but to feel that in our souls. To know that we are valued and cared for and loved and you desire better for us. That you have a future for us. God, I pray in these next few moments you would speak to us clearly. That you would remind us of who you are. 
you would call us to deeper faith, and you would give us the courage to take steps to follow you. May we know in our hearts and our souls that we are yours, that we are forgiven, that we are cared for, that we are valued, that you have a future for us. God, I pray that as Melinda plays, that you would speak to each of us, that you would remind us of who you are and who we are in you. God, we love you and we praise you. It's your name we pray. Amen. Lord, I just pray that you would um, be very present in our lives, Lord. And God, I pray that we would just know your love and your grace. We would know how you value and care for us. It's your name we pray. Amen. All right, well, just a few announcements today. Uh, first of all, if you're new to Living Hope Church, there should be a welcome card somewhere in the area of you. If you wouldn't mind filling that out and placing the box on the back table, we'd appreciate it. That's also, you can place your tithes and offerings. You can consider this your church home. In terms of announcements, we have small group Bible study, which meets here at the church from 6 to 7 on Sunday nights. If you have questions about that, come and see me. And we have youth group and kids night, which meets at the church on Wednesday nights from 6 to 7. If you have questions about that, you can see me or you can see Ms. Smith about youth group. And then uh, Sunday morning uh, children's classes, if you talk to Melody uh, about volunteering with that, this, the, man, I'm struggling here. The, uh, the schedule is on the back table, so you can check that out. If you have questions about that or need to reschedule one of those, you can talk to Melody. Uh, about that. If you're interested in serving uh, down there, you can talk to Melody as well. Well, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for uh, getting through that with me. It's been uh, two weeks of not fun preparation for that one. So next week, I think we're just talking about wine. So it's going to be a piece of cake. So come back and join us for that. Uh, We'll look forward to it. Uh, But have a great week and we will see you next week. You are dismissed.